people are the most consequential and dangerous forces on earth. Well, personality psychology is about the nature of human nature. It's about people. And wouldn't that be useful to know? I mean, it seems to me, I can't, I can't think of a more important problem. You're listening to the Science of Personality podcast, brought to you by Hogan Assessments, the global leader in personality assessment and leadership development since 1987. Your hosts are Hogan Chief Science Officer and world-renowned personality psychologist, Dr. Ryan Sherman, along with Hogan PR Manager and resident storyteller, Blake Lepp. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Sherman, along with my co-host, as always, Blake Lepp. Say hello, Blake. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast, episode 57. Today, Ryan and I are joined by Dr. Bradley Brummel, professor of psychology and director of industrial organizational psychology at the University of Tulsa to discuss role replacement, whether that be an employee, a teammate, or even a romantic partner. People either want someone exactly like the previous person or completely opposite. Today, we will talk about how personality is a key component of this. So with that, Brad, is there anything else you want the audience to know about you before we dive into the episode? Um, I think for this specific topic, uh, the more relevant thing is that in the last five years or so, I've done some um, executive coaching or uh, narrative coaching with people, which has brought me a little bit more outside of the ivory tower of just writing papers about people to really hearing how leaders and other people are thinking about some of these situations. And one of the reasons this topic appeals so much to me is I hear people essentially saying, Thank goodness my boss finally left. Whatever we do, we can't have another one of this person. And normally they'll use their name. They're like, not, you know, they'll like hashtag, you know, not another Tom. And so when uh, I'm talking with them, it becomes really salient that that's sort of the average person's approach to some of these situations. Well, I just want to say thanks again, Brad, for coming on. I think this is your third time now on the podcast with us. Um, for, for those of you who, who may not have listened to those episodes, I would encourage you to go back and check those out, of course. Uh, but Brad is an expert on things like engagement and turnover uh, uh, in the sort of academic circles and has published lots of research on those topics, uh, among actually quite a few others. Uh, but as he mentioned, also has done some executive coaching work, has published on the topic of executive coaching uh, and is uh, doing quite a lot of executive coaching, uh, as Brad mentioned, but also uh, in part using our assessments uh, and working with people in real business settings is one of Brad's, uh, I, I would say, is one of the unique features you have as an academic. Uh, I know many academics uh, are interested in doing consulting. Many don't get as much uh, actual real world experience as I feel like you've gotten. Uh, so it's always a pleasure to have you on here. So thanks for joining us, Brad. Absolutely. I'm glad to be back. Oh, I should mention one other thing. Brad is also now the president-elect of the Society for Psychologists in Leadership, uh, which is a, uh, a recently renamed group of, of scholars who are, uh, well, sort of scholar practitioners or people who came from a sort of clinical background, if that's right, Brad, uh, or maybe counseling backgrounds who, who are now working with leaders to, to help develop better leaders. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a, it used to be the Society for Psychologists in Management, and I think we're in the 39th year of the organization. And it's a lot of mid to senior um, career psychologists who are really grappling with issues of how to help leaders be more effective or working as a leader themselves. And psychology to organization leader isn't uh, the most common path people think about. So we do a lot of support for each other. And then once a year, we host a, a conference where we bring in people and really try to wrestle with some of these questions. And uh, next year, next uh, April, we're bringing it to Tulsa. So that's kind of exciting. Very cool. Well, well Brad, I would say one of the neat things about, uh, you know, having you on as, as a podcast guest is, you know, as many, you know, talented and, and smart people as Ryan and I get to work with and speak with, um, you know, on a, on a daily basis working at Hogan, uh, the the fun thing about you is we actually run into you around town because you're right here in Tulsa with us. So it's it's fun to uh, to have this you know professional uh, working relationship and have you on the podcast to discuss these various topics, but also to to see you in person from time to time. Um, you know, we used to actually you'd stop by the office quite frequently before whenever like 
COVID wasn't a thing and we were still in the office every day. So happy to have you back on. But the first thing I want to ask Brad on this topic, um, you know, you're obviously well-versed on a variety of topics related to personality and IO psychology. However, you know, as we were discussing potential topics for this episode, role replacement seemed to be one that has recently piqued your interest. So what got you interested in this in the first place? Yeah, I mean, it's it's some of it's the coaching and some of it's working with some of my friends and uh, just talking about life and what they want in different situations. And just hearing this like really uh, explicit statement that people make when something requires a replacement of a person. So somebody moves on to a new job, um, somebody breaks off a relationship, maybe a friend uh, moves to another city or has a kid and isn't as available um, for you. And you'll hear people say, like, I need another Lauren or um, never again, another Tom. And so when they're thinking about this need in their life to replace this role, they'll use the person's name. And that's interesting in uh, how that approach is actually uh, really salient. So it really allows a person to like evocatively know what they're running towards to try to replace or running away from. Uh, but it's also really restricting because you're thinking about the whole embodiment of this person. Um, in my current job, we're looking to replace some of the faculty who've retired or moved to other places. And uh, for as we start, we're like, okay, we need another Al or we need to replace Jennifer. And like, that's a interesting approach in that it's kind of constraining because what we really need is somebody to teach us certain classes and do some kinds of research. And so I just find it really interesting that this sort of colloquial use of someone's name has this uh, power to be evocative and bring all the emotions and think about things, but might be really constraining as you try to like hunt for who this um, either uh, parallel prototype or twin of this person might look like or to look for the opposite. Uh, so you're like, you never want another one of these people. And so thinking about what you would do to enact that replacement um, has shown up a lot. So, you know, I'm primed to notice it when I hear it right now. Yeah, I think, you know, it is a really common thing. And in fact, I remember uh, even when I was in graduate school, it was a tactic that, uh, that was used in labs, uh, dare I say, even my own lab, uh, to, uh, to, to uh, recruit uh, teaching, uh, sorry, what are they called? Research assistants. Yes, to, to recruit research assistants. That's kind of what we would say. We'd say, well, do you know anybody who's like you? Uh, go find some other people who are like you because we're trying to recruit research assistants. So if you know people who are like you, uh, tell them to apply to our lab. And while I see, you know, there's a certain amount of appeal to that, uh, obviously, and I think we're going to get into this in the episode today, uh, there, there's some some obvious downsides uh, to that strategy as well. But uh, it certainly is a sort of a simple way to go, oh, we like you, you're really good. L let's go find more people like you to, to, to do that job. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because, you know, the times when it's been most salient, uh, it can be like sort of funny and idiosyncratic things. And, and we might get into it more, but I, I do remember we had a graduate student who would say, I'll say uniquely idiosyncratic in the program that I attended. And um, we actually had that discussion with our advisor. Like, are we going to get another one of, you know, these guys? And he, he actually just stopped and like with complete seriousness said, never again. And so it was interesting, but we had this longer discussion about like, how do you make sure that you don't get sort of really problematic grad students? And uh, Jim Rounds actually was just like, I don't know. He's like, it's a crapshoot even if you interview them. So there is uh, this uh, tendency that shows up in these places. I don't know, uh, Blake, is this something you've uh, seen floating around in your sphere? Well, how so? Like, do you hear people sort of using these names as things that they either want to replicate or not see again? Yeah, I don't know that it's it's as direct as that, but I, there's definitely references back to someone who maybe didn't work out or um, or or they they were great, you know, until they you kind of reflect upon it after you leave and realize, oh, gosh, you know, now that we have an opportunity 
it wasn't necessarily like, oh, this person, you know, like you we wouldn't necessarily think about it in the moment. But after someone leaves for another role, you think, wow, here's an opportunity to actually get something different out of this role, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Brad, it's only natural for people who are in a situation to replace a star employee, you know, a teammate, um, or it could be a friend or romantic partner, like I mentioned earlier, to want that replacement to be just like the previous person. But why, why might that be a problem? And what role does personality play in this? So, so as I think about it, the, the issue is all the things that we might think about intuitively or first that makes the replacement the same as the person. So if we just say, okay, I want another person like my previous, um, you know, partner or like the previous employee, you might use these characteristics, which we often warn against using because they don't really get to the core of their experience with someone. So you might say, I want another person who's this tall or has this hair color or is of this gender or ethnicity. And so you start hunting for people that look on the outside like this person. Uh, but they might not then have the core uh, values or traits that w- that really drove the positives in the relationship. And so when you say, I want another one of these, you might end up um, being somebody who gets accused of always dating someone who looks exactly the same. You know, you're like, well, that relationship was pretty good. Like, I'm going to find someone who kind of looks the same as this person. Uh, and so you end up um, limiting yourself Uh, to people who don't look the same, and you end up making selections on variables that we don't think are as important as perhaps some underlying characteristics. And so they might look like a twin (laughs) of who you're hoping to get, uh, but not actually deliver on some of the things that take longer to discover about people. Yeah, I think, uh, to, to me, I think that is the real problem uh, or at least one of the real problems with this strategy is that you end up selecting on characteristics that you might think matter, but in reality don't actually uh, matter, particularly in the in, in the workplace, right? So we're going back to this example of, of recruiting research assistants where you say, okay, find people who are like you. Well, you know, each person has their own unique uh, tendencies, characteristics, quirks even, and, and they might go find people who have those kinds of things, but that's maybe not what you were really talking about. Like if you wanted, you know, research assistants who were uh, detail-oriented and conscientious and hardworking and motivated and, and punctual, then you should just say those things. Go find people who are like that. Instead of saying, go find people who are like you, they might end up finding people who are like them in, in, many, in many ways, but in many ways that don't count for performance in that particular role. And, and to me, that's the real problem with this approach is, you say, oh, we, you know, you said, oh, we need to replace, we need to have another Jan. It's like, well, do, do you really need that? Or do you need someone who has a certain set of characteristics or, or who is really good at performing a certain set of tasks. Um, and I think that this can be a real problem in the way organizations think about uh, you know, re- replacing top-level people. You go, oh, okay, well, if this person leaves, there's nobody here who can possibly do what that person does, right? Um, but a lot of times, or, or nobody here is like that person, but, but a lot of times that omits what is actually required to be successful in the role, right? So you can imagine someone who, who's really successful in, in, in a particular role, but they do it in their own sort of unique way. And when that person leaves, you think, well, we have to find someone who's just like that person. And the reality is you don't need to do that. You need to find someone who can fit that role, who can, who can do that job. And they don't have to be like the person who left. In fact, they might do it in a very different way from the person who left. Um, but but still equally successfully, uh, and, and I think that's the, to me the real problem is that it really uh, it, it uh, sort of puts blinders on our thinking um, and, and restricts us to thinking about only this kind of person can be successful in this role when it may very well be that other people can be uh, if uh, if we really consider what's important for the role. Yeah, and the, you know one of the things that I end up doing a lot when I'm coaching is actually dealing with the ghost of the person that was replaced. 
So the person that was replaced mm-hmm. um, often, you know, in this situation was loved and effective in the way that they did that. And as you move into the role, people will get, you know, this person did it this way. Why don't you do it the same way? This person had this style. Why aren't you them? Yeah, because you're missing, you know, these other things of, of these positive relationships. And so um, I kind of encourage people to take it head on. And to actually do some unpacking on the fact that they won't be the same as the last person. And it would maybe be inauthentic or ineffective if they were. But um, it, but to also recognize that it's natural for people to kind of be wistful of the person before them. And that's not, you know, necessarily a threat uh, to the new person who comes into the role. Well, I think there's also some advice there, Brad, for, for people who are... Um uh, sort of incumbents in the organization, right? So if somebody new comes into the role, uh, I, I mean, I, I, there were the analogy you gave earlier with relationships, I think, uh, romantic relationships, I, I think makes a lot of sense. Imagine if, uh, you know, you have a new person in a role and you say, well, the old person did it like this or the old person did it like that. I mean, that's got to feel very similar to, <laughs> Uh, imagine again being in a in a romantic relationship with or a new romantic relationship with somebody new and saying, "Well, my old partner did it this way. My old partner, like, I don't think that's going to go over very well with with your your new romantic partner." Uh, and and I think it's probably pretty similar for a new person to role. So I think that it's sort of incumbent on both, right? The the you know the the new person coming in uh, to obviously adapt to the organization and and the role, but I think the organization and the people there also need to recognize that the new person isn't going to be exactly the same and they shouldn't expect them to be exactly the same either. That just reminded me, we kind of joked at at my uh, school about we had a professor who always like wore trucker hats. So he had this certain aesthetic. And once he left, um, we said, we need a new trucker hat person, right? (laughs) Maybe not (laughs) the most uh, important characteristic to replace in the department. Well, Brad, one thing, and this comes actually from personal experience at a previous job where I was, I was leading a marketing department and I got on the job and there were essentially two open positions on the team I was running. Both were called or previously called at this organization, uh, a business development representative. And it was kind of like, well, I need to fill two roles. So I don't want to get us too far off topic here, but you know, I think it's also important to kind of look back and say, when that role is open, make sure that you might need to take a closer look at it and maybe even redefine it um, whenever you have that opportunity. Because what I saw is like, well, how about I do one business development representative and then get a graphic designer because ultimately that is going to produce the best end result for getting um, new customers. That was, so sometimes it's, it's more about reexamining the role um, as much as anything before you actually determine what you, who you're going to hire from there, right? Yeah, we can get caught in this position of expecting someone to replace what they did, but what if the person you replaced like brought cupcakes on Thursday, like, and you don't cook? And, you know, like two weeks in, people are like, where are our cupcakes? We hired you um, to fulfill that role in our company. And, you know, I want my sweets. And so there's a variety of versions of that where, like, you can never know sort of, like, what's expected. But all they know is you're sitting in the chair of the person who used to do this thing uh, for the organization or for you. Yeah, that makes sense. It, it, and I, I really do think that, that these kinds of things are, are are critical because, you know, we get asked all the time or one of the concerns that comes up when, when people are working uh, w- with us to do selection is, is this idea of clones, right? So they'll say, well, if we use personality assessment, does that mean we're just hiring clones? Does that mean we're just cloning? And, and it's interesting because on the one hand, you hear people say things like, well, that's what they want. They want a clone of the person who was there before. But on the other hand, you hear people who are worried about, you know, particularly if you're talking about topics of diversity, equity, and inclusion, worried about you know getting ex- literally exact matches, clones of the previous person. And you know the reality is that uh, personality covers such a wide range of individual differences that once we narrow down the really critical characteristics for success on the job, there's a whole variety of things that can still differ between individuals that 
actually, in our experience, means you end up hiring people who are not clones. You actually hire quite a diverse workforce, uh, not not just diverse in demographic characteristics, but also diverse in personality as well, uh, because you're concentrating on just the characteristics that are essential for the job, and you're letting those characteristics that are sort of tertiary and not critical for, for job performance success vary. Uh, and so to me, uh, th- that's a real benefit of using personality assessments in, in to, to sort of deal with these. You get the clone, you clone them on the characteristics that are critical, but you, uh, you uh, avoid the clone on the characteristics that, that are less important. So Brad, on the, on the other side of this, if the person being replaced was, let's say, toxic or ineffective in that role, the other natural tendency is to find a replacement who is completely opposite. So why might that be problematic? Yeah, I mean, in this case, the, the problem there might be that, you know, one or two of these characteristics, similar to what Ryan was talking about, were the real problems, but a number of the other characteristics are core to doing the function of the job. So again, in a recent example, in my own life, uh, my friend was dealing with somebody sort of in a finance accounting department who was pretty toxic. And the issue was you don't just want uh, somebody who comes in who's like really extroverted and good with people, but doesn't have maybe the attention span or the detail orientation to sit there and get the financial documents right every week or every day. So if you say, okay, we don't want somebody like the last person and the last person may have been good with the numbers, but bad with people, you don't want to throw out the bad with people part while you throw out the number part too. And so it's one of these things where you, where you um, can end up tossing out necessary characteristics for the position while you get rid of the other issues that they had. And one of the, the ways I make this most salient to people that I think is a little bit um, funny is that most people don't, but a few people will, after a bad relationship, switch things like, you know, the age range people are in, um, the religion they have, or maybe even the gender, because they want to get away from what they just experienced. And, you know, we might not think that those are the core elements to uh, making the relationship successful as you're running away from a specific aspect that was, say, toxic or problematic. Yeah, so th- there's a real natural tendency for for humans to uh, to generalize from particular situations, right? Um, I, I mean, the, the, there there's sort of good reason that humans do this, right? We have to predict what the future is going to be like, making mistakes, uh, at least uh, historically. Uh, can be can be really costly, perhaps even deadly. And we, if we think about the case of our of our ancestors, right? Um, you know, knowing when the river is going to flood versus when it isn't uh, could could be really problematic. Um, and so we we use limited information, uh, little bits of information, and we try to generalize from that. We try to draw patterns from information where there's really not enough to draw an inference or to or, or to, to see a pattern. But we try to do it anyway. And, and humans are actually really really good at seeing patterns that aren't there uh, or, or making up patterns that aren't there and, and partly f- for, for good reasons, but also it leads to these problematic kind of cases where, you know, for example, if you had a, a, a bad boss uh, and that bad boss happened to be uh, a female, uh, you, you might go, Oh, I could never work for a, for a woman boss because I had a, you right. So those kinds of judgments are what people make all of the time. And, uh, so, so, and I think that's the real, the real key here when we're talking about, you know, a toxic person. So we, we look at characteristics that are not really central to effectiveness on the job, right? What made that boss bad wasn't that she was a female, was that she was toxic or that she was, um, vindictive or that she was narcissistic or whatever it was. Um, those kinds of, characteristics are what you want to avoid, not, not the female on this, right? So um, the point here is that it, it's sort of uh, the opposite of what we were talking about before. You, you don't want to fall in love with characteristics that were irrelevant to the job. At the same time, you shouldn't be turned off by characteristics that are irrelevant to the job as well. And so this can be equally problematic in just the opposite direction. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the issues, as you've talked about, is we're going to be really holistic and intuitive about these decisions. And so, you know, and that's the kind of implicit reasoning that humans are really, really good at. And it makes sense for it to be an evolved skill. 
But as we're trying to be smarter than our intuition, we need to figure out how to sort of back away from it. And, and some of these things are really going to have uh, something akin to traumatic links. If you've had a really problematic um, partner or uh, coworker or boss, you might have anybody who kind of feels like them in physical size, in mannerisms or something else. And your um, entire system is going to just scream warning. At, the, at, at you when, when you encounter them and you're going to, you know, prejudge them to have these characteristics that you haven't had the chance to experience, whether they're actually like that or not yet. And so this means that we actually have to be really intentional about slowing down our judgment systems and possibly um, trying to find an in run around our intuition in this space. Um, and I've seen some situations where a person was particularly toxic for only like half the team. And so some people will say we can't have another person like this. And other people just kind of shrug and say, what was wrong with that person? And so you, you really are fighting against some very intuitive um, thinking and, and feeling in these spaces when you're trying to avoid uh, returning to a toxic situation. Well, and I think that's a really good point, Brad, because one of the things that we know is that intuitions at times can be really valuable, right? You can say, well, I don't know, this person, this interviewee just kind of creeped me out. Um, and that seems like a really weird reason, right? But it's certainly a reason people have used for, for declining candidates. Um, but it doesn't, it's not really specific. Like, what is it that you mean that would make this person ineffective on the job or make them bad fit for the job? Um, and, and sometimes it could be a reason that was really idiosyncratic to you, something about uh, you or some past experience that you had that, that created that feeling or that intuition. And, and so I, I guess my thought would be to run that by other people, right? Did other people have the same feeling? Is it an intuition that's grounded in something that actually will matter for the job? Because if there's other coworkers who have the same feeling, there's a high chance that the, the, some of these issues might actually be problematic on the job. But if it's really just you or just one person who had that feeling, then uh, there, there's a decent chance that that's reflective of something that's much more idiosyncratic about, about that person and, and, and less, uh, less likely to be problematic in, in the workplace. You know, this is an area I've actually changed my personal sort of feelings on quite a bit since being in graduate school and sort of being, okay, let's make mechanical decisions. Let's trust the tests. You know, we'll go with this because everything else is going to bring in unreliability and sort of other noise. But especially when it comes to female intuitions about men, um, if someone says that guy creeps me out, I think it's incumbent upon a thoughtful company to really say that's enough of a trigger to really enhance the background check. So to really yeah. check out the possibility that they might have a whisper campaign against them, that there might be bad behavior in the past that people aren't going to volunteer on a first pass, but might really be there because I don't have that intuition. Um, but when I talk to my female friends, there's some depth there. So, you know, we don't talk about that a lot in our selection systems, but I think there might be something there that does respect um, the depth of, of what might be there and pushing someone to work with somebody who, you know, creeps them out is um, doesn't seem like a wise way to build a good culture. Wow, that's really interesting, actually. Um, it's definitely something I haven't thought of either. But I mean, Brad, we know obviously based on this conversation that people do tend to look for this complete match or mismatch when uh, replacing someone in a role. But, you know, there's a limited pool of potential people who would be available or even want that particular role. And we don't get to build these people in a lab. So what would you recommend focusing on, uh, you know, if you're an organization looking to replace someone um, or you find yourself in this type of situation? Yeah, this is really what, you know, Ryan and I have kind of been heading towards with some of our discussions of the advantage of, you know, having, you know, multiple personality traits available, but only focusing on, you know, one or two or a few as the real cruxes of what you're looking for. So, you know, being realistic about the applicant pool is something we sometimes forget in our research. But 
for a lot of jobs, a lot of positions, a lot of roles that we have in our life, there might only be one or two candidates. And if that's the case, like viable candidates, then what we really want to do is focus on the core trait or value uh, personality characteristic that truly matters when it comes to making them potentially unsuccessful. And in this case, I really like to take what I call the select out frame. So normally what you're doing in this situation, even if you're trying to replicate someone that you've had before, is to find the one trait or the three, two or three traits that are vital for a good experience and just getting rid of people who don't have them or getting rid of people who have sort of the negative trait. And once you've done that, you're, you're still in a sort of um, lottery. You're still guessing that the other things will work out, but at least you've removed the specifically problematic um, people from the pool for that specific role. And so um, this is uh, the framing is simply to say, I'm going to somewhat randomly without perfect precision pick among people but my first swipe is to get rid of the ones that will uh, replicate the thing that I've had before in a problematic way. Um, was that clear? Yeah, well, well, it makes sense to, to me, Brad. I, I also, uh, I mean, I think at, at the same time, when <laughs> well, one of the things that this matches up, that sort of strategy is, is uh, one of these decision-making rules from, uh, I know, Gerd Gigerenzer, who's this, sort of world-class researcher on decision-making. Um, he has several books, uh, which I can recommend because I've read them and I enjoyed them. Uh, but uh, one of the rules he has is called pick the best, right? Which is sort of, um, if you're trying to compare two things, so should we go with this or should we go with that? Should I buy this camera? Should I buy that camera? Should I buy this computer or that computer? Should I hire this person or that person? Uh, one of the things to do is to rank order the 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 sort of features of importance like what's most like what you were saying earlier Brad what's most critical what are the most critical characteristics for success in this role and then compare the two and, and like so you've rank ordered them top to bottom and you compare the two candidates on those critical characteristics and as soon as uh, one candidate beats another right it might be the third characteristic down where candidate one beats candidate two. It, the the rule there is the stop. Don't look down and see. Well, did they win on ca on characteristic four? Did they win? Who won on characteristic five? It's say these these are the most important things. We're going to pick the best. We're going to pick who's best based on the the most critical one. And if it's tied, we go to the next most critical. Right. And, and that that rule actually works really well for making decisions about like like I said, all kinds of things. Whether it's like what meal you want to order at a restaurant. Um, or, or whatever it is. Once you've rank ordered the features that are most critical to you, and then you just pick as soon as one, if it's the first feature and somebody beats on the first feature, then that's it. You go with that person. Uh, that rule tends to work really, really well in terms of making these kind of decisions. And what happens, I think, in a lot of cases is people get caught up in comparing characteristics that aren't as central or aren't as critical. Uh, to a role, and, and they use those as, as justification. And, and we've seen this a lot where people will come up with justifications because they like something about somebody who knows what it is, but they like someone about somebody and they really want to hire someone. So they see what they want to see by picking up other characteristics that aren't really critical for the role and using those to make a case for a person who may not actually be the best fit. So using really a simple set of decision rules, like the one you described, Brad, where you, you sort of say, what are the most critical characteristics? And let's, uh, cut down to people who meet those, who, who are the people who actually have all of those characteristics um, and start from there, I think really helps a lot with, with making more effective decisions. You know, and I think one thing that jumped out to me as you were speaking is in, in person and in like uh, employment settings and uh, partnerships and relationships, one of the key considerations for criticality is uh, the stability or changeability of the attribute. And oftentimes what we do in uh, our system is we'll hire people for the skills that they've acquired that someone else could acquire in two weeks with a training course instead of for the characteristics that are uh, relatively stable and set like personality traits. And so in a current example that sort of sparked this, um, you know, one of my friends was dealing with um, a pretty toxic leader who 
um, was not uh, emotionally intelligent, who would yell at people when um, he became stressed. And so if they're looking to replace this person and they again hire somebody who has a little bit more experience on the technical part of the job, well, that's the thing that's probably easiest to change and train with a little bit of intervention. But the way that people react to stress is very difficult to change um, and would require, you know, years and maybe, you know, therapy and other types of intervention. And so when you're thinking about criticality, uh, one of the things that I always remind people to do is to really think about how trainable um, is it for somebody to have that attribute. Um, because if it's pretty easy to train, it shouldn't be considered that critical, if that makes sense. Well, well, it makes total sense to me. I know this is something uh, scouts do in the, in the sports world as well, right? So, you know, if you're if you're recruiting or scouting for baseball talent, uh, you know, they want to look at things like, well, can does the person have a lot of bat speed? Can they hit the ball hard with a lot of power, or can they throw really hard? And they don't worry so much about bad mechanics. They don't worry so much about if you can't run the bases very well, right? You make bad decisions because they figure, well, we can teach them those kinds of things, right? There's certain technical skills that we can teach in, with a little bit of coaching in a short amount of time, but what we can't teach them is to throw the ball 95 miles an hour plus. Um, so, and I, I think, so I think is this exactly right, Brad, as you think about, does this person have the sort of raw talent uh, to, to do the job well, and can we teach them those those technical skills to to really be successful uh, would be a much better approach. But I think too often we do the opposite, right? We start with the technical skills. Does this person have the technical skills? And then we move to, to the next part. Would you agree with that? Yeah, we absolutely do that. And it actually reminds me of sort of some of the work that you guys have done on employability, you know, and I think uh, Dr. Peter Harms, who was on a couple weeks ago, uh, and I actually wrote a commentary responding to that. When you want to, you know, think about whether you can actually develop whether the employability of somebody. So in this case, if somebody uh, doesn't know how to work hard and isn't minimally rewarding to deal with, um, having some technical skills or ability um, is only going to be relevant for the short term. But those other characteristics, which are much harder to change. Um, um, might show up in somebody who's a little bit less refined. And so, you know, to hiring people who can work hard and will be good to work with in a team, you know, might be a wiser approach, but we do tend to just look for credentials of people who can do the job technically tomorrow. And I think that's where a lot of toxic employees enter workplaces and actually um, find it easy to get rehired. Well, just I want to chime in here, Ryan. We made it just over a half an hour before the first sports reference, so I, I think <laughs> I think that's pretty impressive. Our audience is really gonna <laughs> gonna see progress there on that front. But you know, as we as we move along here in the conversation, uh, one thing that stood out, Brad, whenever I was kind of preparing the you know the the outline and everything for this particular episode uh, that you know, piqued my interest was that you've recently looked at this phenomenon and how it applies to police officers and also attorneys. Can you give an overview of what you've learned thus far? Yeah. So actually both of these main projects are things that I've done with um, Chase Winterberg, uh, Dr. Winterberg now, who was uh, one of my PhD students here and uh, is currently a research scientist over with you guys at Hogan. So uh, in-house kind of person that way. And we have these roles in society that have really strong kind of prototypes for what we want. So this is kind of taking this idea of role replacement and moving it outside an individual experience and kind of thinking it a little bit more as a societal experience. And so whether you've had experiences with police officers or not, our society clearly has had very visceral experiences of watching um uh, police officer violence recorded on tape and saying, like, that's not what I want in a police officer. And so one of the things that we did is we um, took some time to do what's called a job analysis and really ask people what they want in the characteristics of their police officers. 
And we had this idea that the public might have different opinions than new police officers and more senior police officers. Um, as you look across um, the spectrum of what people would imagine like the ideal police officer would be. And so we have these, you know, media images to deal with. And then we also have movies where we have cops like, you know, you know, Dirty Harry, if you want to, you know, go back in time or Bruce, Bruce Willis in the Die Hard movies, where you have these hero soldiers kind of being police officers and then also dark sides of it, like Denzel Washington and something like Training Day. And so when you're trying to say, how do I pick a police officer? What characteristics matter? I think societally, we have this current reaction against somebody who is violent, quickly reacting, strong, you know, quick to use their gun. But I think the flip side of that is you don't want to then get somebody who um, is meek and doesn't respond in a situation. So, you know, if you look at the Uvalde shooting where the cops didn't go in, you know, that everybody is responding to that issue as well. And so this question of what do we need in a police officer, um, what we can train and what we should select on is a really big societal question. Um, and, and when we did this research, um, two things that kind of showed up as desirable across the board are, you know, a value of integrity and um, the ability to have social and emotional skills um, to handle your, yourself in tense situations. And so those are baseline personality characteristics from which we might be able to build an effective police officer that we want to see. Yeah, I, I think a big part of that there is that, you know, the the sort of stereotypes of of what we think of, right, as as an effective lawyer, what do good lawyers do? You know, the sort of Perry Mason type boy, that's probably an old reference. <laughs> uh but but I mean they uh, unfortunately it's a recent reference too but um, but in any case those uh, th that we have this idea that that's what, that that's what they'll be like but of course uh, the, there's the, the reality is much uh, much more effective and I've talked about this in in well back when I was a professor I would talk about you know police officers um, you know we tend to see them portrayed on TV as these sort of uh, you know heroes right these sort of um, well to, to use the term that I would have used or that I used back then it was we sort of uh, see them as uh, badasses right that there's really bad criminals out there we need to deal with those bad criminals and in a lot of sort of police officer TV shows that's what we see and in reality that is also true right in in certain situations you really do need some pretty badass people out there to do this job. But uh, I think the more realistic nature of police work is that most of police work is probably pretty mundane, is not very exciting, uh, is, uh, requires a lot of paperwork and following protocol. Um, and, uh, you know, we have to hire with the right model in mind, right? That, it, that if you have this model of, oh, you know, we need people who are, who are um, you know, ready to take charge and, and, and uh, wanting to, you know, to, to jump out in front and be part of the action, uh, that can actually create a problem where they're actually creating too much action, right? I, I can imagine, I suspect law schools are filled with people who, <laughs> who, who try to act out their, their TV lawyer fantasies uh, as, as part of being in the law program. And that probably doesn't work out very well for the, for them either. So I, I really think it is an issue of, uh, you know, matching what's really required for the job, really understanding what leads to success on the job, uh, and, and trying to identify those characteristics that lead to success on those jobs. Uh, even if it's a different role within the police department or within a law firm, um, uh, but but that's where it really all starts is is identifying those characteristics and and then finding people who can who can fit with those uh, and not necessarily matching those television stereotypes. Yeah, and I, I like where you took that because one of the things that that we sort of worked on in this place is really this this unsung I would say area of organizational psychology that goes under the broad label of classification. So we think so much about selecting a human into a company or into a role. But a lot of these professions, once you've selected into them, there's actually many, many different roles that actually fit different types of people. 
And so a good investigator as a police officer probably has different characteristics than a good member of the SWAT team. And one of the questions is, do we need more investigators or do we need more SWAT team members? Uh, and maybe you don't um, have the same people in each of those roles. And one of the issues that we kind of have is we sort of let people figure it out for themselves. They sort of try something and fail. And then if they can overcome that failure, maybe they do something else. But maybe they think I should switch professions. And so one of the things that drove the lawyer side of this research was just this finding that uh, lawyers as a profession tend to be really burnt out, unhappy, um, and in, uh, you know, just sort of have negative health outcomes as they deal with the profession. And in our research, we really found that there are two broad types of lawyers who look quite different. So there is the hard charging, I want the money, I want the status, I'm going to win the court case uh, lawyer who works good in these sort of conflict situations and maybe um, in front of the media and in front of a jury. And these are the people that are willing to work 100 hours of, of, you know, a week for, you know, the first 10 years and then become a partner. And then we have these other lawyers who really want to do the public defending, the family law. They really are doing services for individuals. And so they're much more motivated by altruism and they actually tend to be a lot less dominant in their personalities. And so one of the things that's a little bit sad is if somebody gets starts in the wrong fit and they say, I guess I shouldn't be a lawyer. And what we're trying to build or what we were working on is a little bit more of this counseling and classification that says, oh, you can still be a lawyer and be happy and successful, but you need to be a different kind of lawyer. And so you can actually pivot within the profession without leaving the profession completely. Um, and so that's one of the things that also shows up here where you, the profession itself, the occupation is probably a category with lots and lots of different profiles that could be successful if they were uh, correctly classified. Well, this really hits home for me because my dad's actually an attorney. So I was, I was dealt with this at the dinner table uh, growing up, but he was kind of your more classic uh, charismatic courtroom attorney, uh, kind of that bulldog also that you just see on, you know, kind of like what you would see on TV, just maybe the small town version of it. Um, so that was kind of my perception of what an attorney was supposed to be. So whenever someone would say, oh, I want to grow up to be a lawyer and I'm kind of looking at them judging as if like, there's no way you could, you can't even stand up in front of a group of four people and present to them. How are you going to stand in a courtroom in front of a judge? And I would tell my, like explain this to my dad or at least try to. And he'd say, no, there's a, there's a whole lot of other attorneys that are unlike me. He's like, I'm more of a generalist. He said, but you know, really a lot of these attorneys will never set foot in a courtroom. Um, they'll be behind a desk writing. So uh, that was always fascinating to me because I really did buy into the stereotype and it took some explaining to me in, in order to understand that there's a whole lot of types of attorneys. But it's, it's interesting just to pivot a little bit. I've done a little bit of work on like, you know, STEM education. So science, technology, um, engineering and math. And, you know, one of the issues of stereotypes there is that um, this picture of an engineer is always like this man, like competitively building something. And uh, one of the issues for the field that even things like the National Science Foundation have tried to invest a lot in is helping people realize that like that's probably not what engineering work actually is. And so I have a couple sisters who are engineers and it's a lot of uh, collaborative team-based problem solving, working with people, um, building systems, being creative. And so when we imagine it to be really gendered or we imagine it to fit a certain stereotype, we don't even think we might be somebody who could be a replacement in that role. And so, again, this is one of the things that we fight against when we have stereotypes at either a profession level or at an individual level. They really blind us to what might be necessary, the few things that might truly be necessary to be successful in the role. Well, Brad, on the topic of role replacement, 
I think maybe at least here in the U.S., we see this a lot in politics, particularly when people want someone completely different from the incumbent, Uh, you know, with the midterm elections nearing. So this is all top of mind for people. How might this approach uh, affect the legislative uh, or affect legislative progress, uh, particularly whenever you're looking for a complete opposite every time an election uh, comes around? Yeah, I mean, I think where I've seen this most saliently, and I guess as U.S. society we've seen it, is um, I know many members of the Republican Party or the electorate were extremely frustrated by the responses to media attacks um, in near terms by people like John McCain and Mitt Romney, who really thought that they should try to be you know, thoughtful, distinguished, you know, politicians. And so it was really easy for them to back down when they were attacked. So they would accept the premise of the media's questions or, and then they would say, oh yeah, I'm sorry. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm not racist. I'm not sexist. And so um, the electorate, one, one, you know, explanation, I'm not an expert political scientist, is that people are like, okay, like I want a politician who won't take crap from anyone. So they're not going to respond. And, you know, that's one um, description of the way that uh, Trump behaves and actually many down ticket um, politicians. And so people said, no, I'm not going to be the um, weak person who responds. I'm going to be the person who fights, never backs down and says, you know, everything I think. And, you know, that might I can understand that impulse. um, But then that personality style Um, might come with a lot of baggage, you know, such as, you know, a disregard for what might be truth or a tendency to, you know, bully people in other situations as well. So there's a difference between, you know, backing down when people push at you and actually becoming the aggressor. And so, again, I think that um, we'll see this, especially in our primaries in the United States, where the party wants somebody who's like really strong, for their deepest desires and values, where someone who is going to get elected more broadly is probably going to be a little bit more uh, conciliatory. You know, I think it is interesting uh, that I think it is often the case that people want the opposite of whatever was just in office, uh, at least m- m- more recently, that's been the case, uh, or the opposite of whoever just lost, right? That's that's frequently been the case as well as some of the examples that Brad pointed out there. Um, but uh, at the same time, there, there also seems to be an appeal for sort of nostalgic uh, figures, right? So, I mean, you know, we hear calls about Lincoln and or, or Reagan or right, right, being like certain uh, uh, presidential figures from the past. Uh, that that um, I don't know. I, I think in many respects, uh, uh, call to images that many people may not have ever been familiar with, or obviously had any actual. Uh, <laughs> in the case of Lincoln, for example, uh, ha- had any actual experience with. So. Um, uh, there, there's sort of this, uh, we need someone like that, um, sort of, uh, I don't know, almost fictionalized in some, or at least through, through memory or through history, uh, character, uh, but, but not, um, but not someone who, who, but, you know, so not someone who was like the most recent person we had. Does, does that something like that resonate with you, Brad? It resonates with me. And it actually struck me as you were talking that this might be one of the, Um, challenges for, in the U.S. at least, electing the first female president. So there isn't a um, female um, uh, politician that jumps to mind broadly, I think, in most people's consciousness of somebody who is a a hero and a successful hero in the country. You know, uh, when people think about that, they might go to like, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the the judicial side Mm -hmm. without somebody to call back to it's not really an option. So we don't have a, you know, U.S. Margaret Thatcher or a German Angela Merkel to actually say, oh, no, this is we want one of those. And this, again, might be one of those areas where our intuitions that judge people on those things we see first, which are age, gender, race, actually get in the way of saying we need someone with these characteristics and they are actually housed in many amazing women. 
Yeah, I think that's a really uh, a really good point. Now, the only one that came to mind for me was um, uh, was uh, Eleanor Roosevelt would be one, I guess that maybe would stand out to me as a potential. But um, yeah, I know there were some books uh, about her. I don't know, maybe in the last, oh, gosh, maybe ten years. Uh, I don't know if there was some anniversary or something. But I mean, I feel like she she came back into popularity a handful of years ago. Uh, but I feel like has also sort of faded from recent memory uh, again in the sort of the general population as well. So, but I, I think something like that might be uh, an, an angle to shoot for. But I, but I think your point is a valid one, Brad. That there that there just aren't as many images. Well, Brad, we definitely appreciate you coming on. But before we let you go, I do have one more question. Um, if people have a natural tendency to search for a prototype to be a complete match or mismatch, what steps do you think need to be taken to get people to focus on what's most important, which is these key must-haves and must-not-haves? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is what we do all the time. You know, this is the biggest the joy of being a personality psychologist uh, or working in these areas in organizational psychology is the tools of our trades are really exactly this. And, you know, when we get really fancy about it, will we, you know, give people um, job analysis tools and ask people, what do we really need for sure in this job or this role? Or what don't we need in this role? And then we actually match it to whether people are more successful or happy um, in this role in general. So we can get super technical about it. But if it's just you uh, in your small company or in your personal life, um, you can actually um, you know, do a version of the same technique. And so for me, it starts with listing out characteristics. And so it helps to have a model available um, you know, like a big five. Um, I really like it if you add in a value model too. So you can do those because I think the values really show up in this place. And then you can kind of, you know, with your friends, um, go through and say, you know, what is the thing that is really problematic here? What is it that we need? So you jump out of the sort of intuitive brain where you're saying this person creeps me out and you're saying, what is it about them that is um, consistent, that's a trait or a character piece that, you know, could be, you know, one of these flaws or on the flip side is the thing that I'm really, really hunting for in this space. And so um, this is some of what people do when they're, you know, planning a job ad, if they're doing it in a systematic way. It's some of the work that you walk through um, if you meet with a therapist or coach. And it's really um, this process of naming the characteristic. And as Ryan was talking about early, earlier, really thinking about how critical um, it is for this role. And it, it also um, ties into something that's kind of in the public uh, consciousness now, which is this, this idea of outsourcing. So you have a number of needs that you have as a human or a company has for a role. Um, which ones of them have to be done by this person and which ones of them could possibly be outsourced to somebody else. And so I'm reminded actually of a, of a friend who was like hunting for a, a significant other and she kept finding people um, who she could banter with because uh, she was really quick witted and pretty harsh and enjoyed sort of this, you know, um, tit for tat banter. And, you know, I kept telling her that, like, you can outsource that easier, um, pretty easily. There's plenty of people that, you know, want to banter and joke. Uh, but, you know, that isn't a requirement necessarily for a husband. And in fact, I'm not sure that you want to do sort of sarcastic, critical banter um, with the person you have the closest intimate relationship with, because you're always going to step over the line and that might not be the right place to do it. <laughs> so... Uh, anyway, um, it requires a little bit of this slower thinking uh, and unpacking of what might be the core pieces. Uh, and, you know, doing that can be fun, or at least I enjoy it when I get to do it with some of my uh, friends and colleagues. 
Well, I think that's a really nice summary, Brad. I really like that last point about uh, identifying the sort of nice-to-haves, would-be-fun-to-haves, would-be-kind-of-neat-to-haves, and saying, well, can we outsource those as long as we have the essential-to-haves for the job? I think that's a really uh, important way to think about it and a really nice add here uh, to the end of the program. So I just want to say thanks again so much for coming on today. Uh, really appreciate it. Really cool topic and uh, always good to talk with you. Thanks. No, I, I always enjoy talking to uh, both of you as well. And, you know, I think this, um, you know, as somebody who has a PhD and spent all this time sort of reading the technical articles, I, you know, like to find these hooks that actually tie what we do into sort of more common uh, discussions that people are having every day. And I, you know, have kind of really just started to dig into this, you know, role replacement. You know, you don't just need to not have, you know, another Tom kind of idea. And so uh, I'm curious to see, you know, where it goes and how useful it is um, in some of these coaching discussions or teaching discussions as we introduce sort of some of this personality science to people. Well, Brad, this is great. And also, I think you just gave me a like unknowingly a great piece of advice is that now anytime in a relationship, I'm just going to say, you know, outsource it. Um, you know, <laughs> if, there, if there's a deficiency, I'm just gonna say, Hey, just, just outsource that. Um, Brad said it's, it's okay. Um, <laughs> and he's a doctor, but that's, that's going to be my, my play going forward. But on a serious note, Brad, thanks for coming on. Uh, you know, we'll have you back on again in the future. It's always fun to catch up and, and hear what you're working on, what you're, you know, what's, what you're interested in at any, at any given point in time, uh, and talking about it, uh, in depth with you on the podcast. So it's great to have you on again. Thanks a lot. And that does it for the science of personality podcast, episode 57. Be sure to join us in two weeks for another fun and informative episode. Cheers, everybody. This has been the science of personality podcast brought to you by Hogan assessments. You can access all podcast episodes on our website, scienceofpersonality.com, or on the streaming service of your choice. See you next time.